0: Hello again and welcome to Pick Yourself, the podcast that helps you build a meaningful electronic music career. If your goal is to create and release outstanding music on respected labels, get better bookings and grow a tribe of true fans instead of just social followers, then this show is for you. My name is Philip. thanks for tuning in and now let's get right into today's episode. Welcome to episode 47 of Pick Yourself. I'm stoked to have you here with me again. Welcome to this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in and we have something great today because we are going to bust some common myths. We will talk about music production tutorials, the good, the bad and the ugly, because as much as I love free information, as much as I love sharing of knowledge, I think there are some dangers in learning from music production tutorials alone, and I will pick out some myths that are popping up again and again in the audio world, especially in the electronic music audio world, and we will bust these myths. Now, mainly I make this episode to help you level up your production game, but there's also another more selfish uh, reason why I'm recording this, and that is as a mixing and mastering engineer, so many know that I run a studio called Copilco Productions that specializes in mixing and mastering electronic music tunes. And as a mixing and mastering engineer who works with dozens of artists every month, um, with hundreds of songs every year, I get to hear a lot of bad productions. Also some good ones, but mainly ones that could be better. Now, the interesting thing here is most of them make the same kinds of mistakes. And when I dive deeper and deeper and talk to the producers behind these tracks they tell me that they've learned some of these things that they did in their productions from music production tutorials on youtube or on blogs or other platforms and so the selfish reason to record this podcast here is i want to work on more awesome productions in the rest of this year and also in the next years therefore You can take this away with you, you can learn from it, but also it makes my life way easier in the end. So that is my selfish reason behind recording this. Now, before we jump into this topic, let me quickly point you to the resource that comes with this podcast. It's called The 7 Strategies of Highly Successful Electronic Music Artists. And that is a free PDF guide that you can download at pickyourselfpodcast.com slash free. Once again, pickyourselfpodcast.com slash free. And these seven strategies are the things that have helped my most successful studio clients. So some of the people that I have worked with in the last years, they are extremely successful in the electronic music scene. They play hundreds of shows every year. Okay, maybe not now in the Corona time. They have many releases with respected labels. And there's a reason why they are so successful. And many others that I work with don't have the same level of success. And I have Basically, put together the strategies that I found help these people. Yeah, the strategies behind their success. I have put these into a free PDF guide that takes you five minutes to consume, but it can dramatically change the outcome of your artist career if you implement these things. So go to pickyourselfpodcast.com/free, grab the seven strategies of highly successful electronic music artists, and implement them, and you will see success pretty soon. Alright, now let's jump into this week's topic, music production tutorials, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, these days, it's quite common to learn from music production tutorials on YouTube and on blogs and other platforms. This is just the number one way of learning how to produce music these days. So, people that now enter the electronic music scene, they maybe have been DJing for quite some years, and then they try to figure out how to use Ableton or any other DAW. They try to find out how to produce their first eight-bar loop, try to learn how synthesizers work and so on. And I mean, where do you go for that? Obviously, you jump on YouTube or type it into your search engine and then land on YouTube. And yeah, you look up what music production tutorials exist in your niche, in your genre. And yeah, I think this is especially true for electronic music genres like Techno and House. Um, because it's relatively easy to produce a music production tutorial for these types of yeah, genres, because all you have to do is screen share most of the time. Yeah, If you want to teach someone how to record acoustic drums, obviously you have to have a big studio, lots of microphones, um, and it's a very complicated camera setup to capture everything to then show to people how to record acoustic drums. But if you just want to teach people how to use Ableton and produce a song in Ableton, well, all you have to do is take a screen grab of your session that you're working on. And then you put it online and hopefully it gets viral and a lot of people click on it. Now, I think this is partially okay, but also partially problematic because if you blindly trust whatever a YouTuber puts in their music production tutorial, you might end up confusing facts and opinions. Yeah. It's because these people don't make it clear sometimes what is their own opinion or mixing or production philosophy and what is an actual fact that you just do because of the technical reason for that. But let's first talk about what's great about free music production tutorials. So first of all, let me get this straight, I am all in favor of free learning. I think this is fantastic, we're living in an age of free education and free knowledge and this is great. And this podcast and blog is exactly the same thing, yeah? It's a free resource for everyone who wants to build a meaningful artist career. I'm doing this because I believe it's the right thing to do. And I'm doing it because I love seeing people succeed. So the feedback that I get from podcast listeners and blog readers that implement this stuff and (laughs) a few months later see massive success in some areas, some things that they thought had never been possible before, um, these things, getting this positive feedback later on, this gives me immense satisfaction beyond yeah whatever i'm earning with my studio business yeah so this free resource is something where i can give and i can see results because it changes people's lives to a certain degree so all that to say i am all in favor of free education i think this is great and i love it that there are so many free youtube music production tutorials out there and the modern, empowered laptop producer has most likely learned a lot from free tutorials. The entry barrier to music production is so low, it's incredible, which means that more and more talented young people will find their way into this world. And this is great. I mean, some of you might now think, oh, this means like there's more competition out there. And uh, yeah, it's harder and harder to find an audience. And yes, while this is true, it gets harder to find an audience and really pull them into your thing. But overall, if you adopt this abundance mentality that it's just great to have more fantastic music out there then I think yeah we all benefit from this in the end that this entry barrier is so low because it doesn't depend so much on money or what gear you have it just depends on how much passion you have for whatever you want to achieve and a lot of these young laptop producers they are going to build successful music careers having paid zero for education in this field And that is great, I think. These music production tutorials have helped them um, at the first steps of their career. But also, I think some of the obstacles that they were facing during this path came from misinformation or misguided information in these music production tutorials. And now, just observe your own way of finding the solution to a certain problem. You might have been producing for some years already. So what's the first thing you do when you have a question on, for example, a certain function of your DAW? Yeah, of course, you enter it in your search engine or you go directly to YouTube and you try to figure it out this way. And even if you just Google it, this question, you will most likely end up on a page that has some kind of free tutorial, either on a blog or leads to a YouTube video or whatever. And yeah, for you as well, this is great, right? I do the same thing. I sometimes forget a certain shortcut or... Um, sometimes I even want to learn a new program or a new DAW, of course I go to YouTube and yeah, try to f- look up some kind of tutorial that helps me with that. But here is where it gets problematic. So looking up a certain function or a certain technique on YouTube is perfectly fine. The problem with free music production tutorials comes up when opinions are being sold as facts. Yeah, Let me repeat this. Opinions are being sold as facts. So, often we stumble upon YouTubers who tell us they're, for example, three secrets to a better mix or the number one strategy to make your kick drum slam hard. But here it gets tricky. Many of these YouTubers are, first and foremost, YouTubers. They are not successful music producers. They are not successful engineers. They are most likely hobbyists who turned their passion into a YouTube career. At least the ones that pop up like really high in the search results. They are simply YouTubers with a certain opinion. Now, my goal is not to discredit YouTubers who make a living off their channel. I think that's perfectly fine. That's absolutely okay. And some of them are super talented and passionate music producers. But I think you as the viewer, you need to have the ability to separate opinions from facts. And sadly, there are way too many music production tutorials out there that give problematic advice and sell opinions as facts. And this is why I've decided to bust some of these myths in this episode to help you figure out um, a better way to deal with certain issues in your productions. Okay, let's jump into this. We will focus on the three biggest myths that come with certain tips on music production. So the more mixing and mastering projects I did over the last years, the more I started to observe certain patterns in the works of my clients. And it was pretty strange because the tracks had the same types of issues even if they were produced by very different people, even in different subgenres of electronic music, which is my specialization. So this was pretty strange. I observed the same types of errors in the material. And at some point I started asking why they were doing certain things and where they got the advice to do it that way. And the result was shocking because most of my clients were watching the same few high-ranking YouTube music production tutorials, that contained very problematic advice in my opinion. Now, I won't call these YouTubers out because that's simply not my style. I'm not going to mention names, but I mean, maybe you will find out anyway. But instead, I'm going to show you what typical advice I find problematic and why that is. I'm also going to show you what would be a better way to approach these issues. So let's jump into the first one and that is, you have to use high cut and low cut filters on every track. So I'm sure you've heard of this as well. Putting filters on all of your tracks must be great, right? Because it cleans them up and it gives you additional headroom. It removes like unwanted rumble. It removes unwanted high end or stuff that you don't even hear anymore. So all you need to do for a cleaner production is to slap a high cut and a low cut filter on every single track and you're good to go, right? No, sadly not. That's not a good idea at all. So. Music production tutorials share this advice over and over. And honestly, I have no idea where this is coming from. Yeah, So maybe it's because the old analog consoles, they had a filter button integrated in the console on every single channel. But that somehow doesn't make sense either, because even on an analog console, you would never activate the filter on every channel. Yeah? If that was such a good idea, honestly, why is there even a button? Yeah, if you activate it anyway on each channel. Now the first big problem here is there is no one magic frequency at which you should start filtering stuff out. Yeah, And then there's also the second question which filter slope you should actually use. Yeah, So this is usually measured in dB per octave, the filter slope. So a 12 dB per octave filter, a 6 dB per octave filter, maybe a 48 dB per octave filter. And what many upcoming music producers don't know These values that you put in there, they make a massive difference and they can potentially ruin your signal. So if you use the wrong type of filter slope at the wrong frequency, you can massively harm your signal. So here's what happens if you follow this advice blindly. If you put a high cut and a low cut filter across all the channels, your songs will most likely sound dull, lifeless, and they will lack this I call it the expansive full-range sound that makes professional mixes and masters stand out from the rest. And I've heard countless examples of this in the last years when my clients started to remove or at least adjust the filters, it felt like somebody had lifted a curtain that was in front of their music. Like honestly, it was like fog disappearing and suddenly you really hear the full song, you hear how it comes to life. It sounds more three-dimensional and simply more natural than before. Yeah, It sounds just very unnatural if you have filters on all your channels. Okay, now that you understand why it's probably not a good idea to put filters across all your channels, what would be a better way to approach this? So don't get me wrong, I think filters are a great tool, but they are really powerful. You have to learn how to use them. And my recommendation is to first of all, ask yourself why? Why do you even want to use one on this track? Is it really necessary? What exactly do you want to remove and why? And then you start to experiment with frequency settings and with filter slopes. And this can be a longer process at first, because you need to train your critical listening skills and you have to tune into what the filters and the different filter slopes are doing. But after some weeks of practice, you're soon going to notice considerable differences. Not only between corner frequencies, but also the different filter slopes will start to sound different And the ultimate goal here is to choose your filters based on strategic, deliberate decisions. So, for example, if you have a track that contains beautiful low end, so you have designed a fantastic kick drum, really nice bass, and you want to preserve that low end, I suggest you either don't use any filter at all on kick and bass or a filter that is completely inaudible. So that just removes stuff that you actually cannot hear. So stuff below 20 hertz, that is because this is where the human hearing range ends. So below 20 hertz with a very s- relatively steep filter slope, so something like 48 dB per octave, let's say, um, and a very fast roll-off. So you try to not harm the signal at all and just remove the whatever sub-rumble ha- happens there. And if you deactivate the filter, you should not hear an audible difference. So you just gain headroom, um, but you don't lose anything. And you have to test this with, with really good headphones because only on headphones you will be able to clearly hear the difference. I mean, if you have perfect acoustic environment and great monitors, you can also hear it. But I'm thinking that you will probably work in some kind of home studio right now. So yeah, do this with headphones and see if it even makes sense to use a filter there. If something in the sound changes and the lower end kind of disappears a little bit, then leave that filter away. Keep the beautiful low end. But then... If in the same track, for example, you have an intense percussion section with lots of different shakers and hi-hats and so on, and you look at it and analyze and you also closely listen to it and you find out that there is a lot of low-end stuff happening on your shaker group, for example, then of course it makes sense to use a filter there because you will need this acoustic energy in the low-end instead for your beautiful kick and your beautiful bass. Yeah, So this is a good strategic way of using a filter. And there, for example, you could use a very gentle filter slope of just 6 dB per octave or 12 dB per octave because then this shaker group will still sound very natural, but you can remove some of the unwanted low end. Okay, enough of the first myth, let's move on to the second one and that is you have to carve out frequencies in your bass to make room for the kick or the other way around. So this is another very common myth that persists in music production tutorials on YouTube, on other platforms. And the idea of carving out space in the frequency spectrum might sound logical to you, yeah? because the so-called masking effect is a real phenomenon. And we all know how problematic it is to make kick and bass sit well in a production. Uh, so if you don't know, the masking effect basically tells you that if something is playing in the same frequency range, the louder signal wins, you will hear the louder one and will mask the other one that is behind that. And the standard argument in most online music production tutorials goes more or less like this. If you don't carve out these masking frequencies, your low end will be muddy and you can't properly hear kick and bass. So far so good. But is that really the best solution? Now here is what I find problematic about this advice. Carving out frequencies in the low end is a pretty heavy operation. So kick and bass mainly consist of frequencies below 200 Hz. And if you drastically change the sound by removing, for example, let's say 120 Hz to make the kick cut through the bass, if you remove um, 100 Hz with an EQ, then this is a very, very dramatic change of sound. Altering the fundamental tone of an instrument has serious consequences. It just doesn't feel right anymore. Yeah, It's not what you designed it to be in the first place. You're changing its characteristic quite dramatically. And this can be the reason why we're so unhappy with the low end again and again. So In every new song you try to make the low end sound right and you carve out space for the kick, you carve out space for the bass and you try to make them fit together. But still, at the end of your production process, it just sounds off, it just sounds wrong to you. And this might be the reason. You might be carving out too extremely. Now, I'm not saying you should never use a bit of EQing to separate sounds. Of course, this can be part of your process, it's a very normal tool to use. But you have to be very gentle, you have to be very careful, you have to be very strategic about using this. And that's not usually the case in most music production tutorials they, without mercy, notch out 10 dB or more and they sell this as the one secret that solves your low-end problems. And this is problematic, I think. This results in a very unnatural-sounding low-end and it also results in a low-end that is just sounding too thin often. That's especially problematic when the two elements don't play at the same time. So, for example, between kick drum hits or during a breakdown, this is just a very different scenario. If you just EQ stuff out aggressively and then one of these elements is playing alone, it will sound very thin and very unnatural. Okay, now here is what you should do instead. My recommendation is to ask yourself if there's any way of designing kick and bass in such a way that they organically support each other instead of fighting for attention. Yeah, so usually the more time you use to select the right samples and design your own synth patches, the better your low end will sound in the end and then you don't need any of these like advanced super aggressive notch out techniques in terms of EQing yeah, it's just not important to carve out stuff if you design it the right way to begin with and then you also have the possibility to compose kick and bass in such a way that they rarely play at the same time this would solve the problem more elegantly and would also leave the original sounds untouched and using a bit of sidechain compression for example again be more gentle with this compared to what you see in most <laughs> music production tutorials. Or trying some kind of LFO tool, this can work wonders as well because it moves stuff away and they're not like completely playing full power at the same time. And that will result in a way more natural, way more beautiful low end. Now don't get me wrong, a little bit of EQing will most likely be necessary as well. But that is a very, very different story than carving out space and aggressively notching out certain frequencies in the bass area. Okay, let's now come to the third and final myth that we're going to bust today. You need to use a lot of compression to make your tracks sound big and punchy. So this advice from music production tutorials is one of my favorites. Supposedly you need to compress the shit out of your tracks to make the song sound big and punchy. Yeah, and that makes sense, right? Because Compressors take off the peaks and they elevate the rest of the signal. Yeah, But it's not that easy. So compression is one of the hardest aspects to get right in music production. If you blindly follow this advice, you're most likely ruining your songs one after another. And here's why. Compressors are a super powerful tool for shaping the dynamics of a signal. But they also provide character. And most upcoming artists use them in a way that is harming their music because they think they need to control peaks. Yeah. So what do you do? Exactly what the music production tutorials out there tell you. You use a fast attack time and a ratio of 4 to 1 or more to get rid of the peaks. Yeah, because you need to control them, right? But let's look closer at what this does to your music. It completely kills the transients of the signal and it makes it sound dead and boring. So the transients are the first snappy sounds you hear of any signal. So in the kick drum, for example, that clicky sound that comes first before the low end boom happens. That is the transient of the signal. And music is about movement, especially in club-oriented electronic music genres like techno and house. If you use too much or the wrong kind of compression, you're killing the groove. You're killing the transients, but also the groove. And this results in a dull and boring song. Now, here's what you can do about this. With compression, it's actually quite easy. Most of the time, you need to use way less than you think you need. And there is no way around practicing how to dial in a compressor, learning how parallel compression, for example, works and why this sometimes makes more sense. And also when you should use a very transparent limiter instead of a compressor. So this can also be an option. So think about it in this way. If you want certain elements to stand out, Why would you want to make everything flat? Why would you want to compress everything? Because then nothing stands out. I recommend you learn how to shape transients in the desired way with compressors and also other dynamic tools. And often that means using longer attack times and more gentle ratios. So with longer attack times, you allow the transient to cut through and you only compress after the transient. So this is how certain kick drums really get punchy. This is how certain snare drums get very snappy. A longer attack time and a little bit more gentle ratio. And don't get me wrong here, I'm not afraid of slamming a signal hard with a compressor, but that's only the case when I intentionally want to add a certain character to the sound. Apart from that, the compression that I use is very gentle and hard to hear if you haven't practiced listening to compression. So if I deactivate the compressor, sometimes you don't even hear a real difference if you're just starting out but yeah this is the great art of it this is why you need to practice it this is why your critical listening skills have to be trained to understand what compression does and to listen to it carefully and in music production and mixing it's often about the sum of many small adjustments that create an amazing end result and that still allows for some extreme moves on certain elements because they then truly stand out from the rest This is really important. If you want stuff to stand out, don't compress the shit out of everything because nothing stands out. Okay, that's it for the three biggest myths in regards to music production tutorials. Now, what's the conclusion here? I think tutorials can be great, but you also have to be cautious. And they can be great in two specific occasions. The first one is... You simply want to figure out how a certain program works or a certain tool works or your latest plugin that you just bought. How do these like things work together? And you're just too lazy to read the manual. I mean, you should still read the manual, I think. But um, in these specific cases, you're most likely going to find great information in tutorials. And the second great occasion is you just want to have a look behind the scenes of someone else's workflow. So if that's the case you should see the things you learn as suggestions and not as facts. So, for example, try to get a look behind the scenes of how your favorite music producer does a certain thing. So you Google it, you land on a certain YouTube tutorial where that person gives you a look behind the scenes in the studio workflow. And that is a suggestion that you can take away. And you should see this as their opinion. It's a nice way to look behind the scenes, but it's not a fact you don't have to do it that way always. It might not even suit your music, who knows. So if you don't blindly follow any advice and you do a bit of research on the people who make these tutorials, you will soon be able to sort out the bad apples. And it's not that obvious in the beginning, I have to admit. Yeah. So sometimes you just try out certain technique and you think it's great because it just does something different. But then a few months later you just listen back to the work you did and you find out that you did the same strange mistake over and over again and there's something really flawed in your production style and that is completely okay but now is the time to move on from this and to really form your own opinion about music production and find out which people you want to trust which people you want to follow online and which ones you better stay away from and this i think is a perfect segue into our action steps Okay, how can you put this into action now? How can you get the most out of free music production tutorials? So as always, I will leave you with three action steps that I think are helpful to you. And most importantly here, I think that you should just critically look at music production tutorials from now on and also at the ones you've watched so far already and just figure out what is fact and what is opinion. I think this is the most important takeaway here. But here is action step number one. Analyze your current techniques. Yeah, So you take a look at how you do things and you just question what have you blindly adopted from certain tutorials. And ask yourself also is there another way of looking at the problem? And what makes the most sense in your own opinion? So this is really important. Try to figure out what makes most sense to you and why. And sometimes it can even be great to contrast different opinions. So Even the things that I have shared here in this episode, they are most likely my opinion and not like completely fact-based. Even though I think I'm pretty right with this, still other people have other styles and I completely respect that. But you can take my perspective here and contrast it to some of the things you have seen in other music production tutorials. And that's completely fine then. Then action step number two is double check your current sources. So... Are the people you follow right now mainly YouTubers or do they actually make a living as music producers and engineers or engineers? I think that's a pretty big difference. So, I mean, some of the YouTubers, don't get me wrong, they do a really fantastic job, but not all of them. There are also bad apples that are just really, really good at presenting themselves on camera, which I have a lot of respect for, but they have gained a massive following sharing pretty shitty advice, in my opinion. Yeah, so be a bit more careful with that. And then also look at how they are structuring their content. Do they tell you that this is just some personal workflow or are they trying to sell you their advice as something that you must do this way? Yeah, and this also helps you find out the bad apples. And then action step number three, become more selective with whose opinion matters to you and why. So the number of views or the number of comments On YouTube or something else doesn't mean anything because popularity is not the same as trustworthiness or credibility. And I suggest you select tutorials by people who've built a successful career in music or in sound engineering and are now at a point in their life where they want to share their knowledge and experience. If this is their main driving factor then yes you can trust them probably a little bit more. Alright that's it for this week's episode I would love to hear from you what are your favorite music production tutorial channels right now and why and what are they doing differently than others yeah so you can join our discussion in our private facebook community just go to pickyourselfpodcast.com slash community we have a lot of great members there and it's completely free and we help each other we support each other's growth and we also discuss the episodes yeah so Go there, share your experiences and share your favorite YouTube channels with us. Um, we are all very interested in hearing from you. And if you haven't already, make sure to also download the seven strategies of highly successful electronic music artists. I really believe that this free resource makes a difference for your artist career. Just go to pickyourselfpodcast.com slash free and take it from there. Okay, I guess that's it for today. See you next week. Bye-bye. If you don't want to miss any of the upcoming episodes, please make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and you can find detailed blog posts for every single episode on pickyourselfpodcast.com. Until then, see you next time.